it describes what, what people are going to be like in the last days. Listen to Jesus' description of what the end will be like, particularly when it comes to people's religion. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm, the end will be saved. You know, this reveals that religion is going to be around to the very end. People are always going to believe in something. There, there are going to be prophets who teach and people who follow them. But, but they're going to be teaching lies. And not only that, but, but people's love is going to grow cold. And many are going to turn away from the truth. Uh, the Apostle Paul describes the, the religion of the last days as having a form, an appearance of godliness but denying its power. Always learning, but never able to acknowledge the truth. Is this what we're going to find 30, 100, 400 years from now? Or could it be that this is what we're living in right now? Uh, This summer, we're going to be exploring the book of Malachi. Uh, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. It's the last prophetic voice that we hear before God goes silent. For 400 years. And God's people await the arrival of the Messiah. And so this book is a preparation in many ways for that long period of waiting. And so perhaps we shouldn't be surprised to find that the challenges addressed in this book are many of the same ones that we find in the New Testament. As God's people await the return of their Messiah. So we want to hear what Malachi has to say to us. We live in that age between the the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. The resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ and his return. And it has been a long time, hasn't it? On, On difficult days, it feels like it's been even longer. And so in the midst of waiting, how do we keep our love from growing cold? How do we keep our worship from becoming stale and routine? How do we maintain a fresh and vital view of God's greatness? All right, turn with me to to Malachi 1, chapter 1. I'm just going to read this this passage. We're going to look through from chapter 1 to chapter 2, verse 9. An oracle. The word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? 
Well, you place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible, when you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now implore God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations, from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying of the Lord's table, it is defiled and of its food, it is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, crippled, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty. And my name is to be feared among the nations. And now this admonition is for you, O priests. If you do not listen, and if you do not set your heart to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them, because you have not set your heart to honor me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will spread on your faces the offal from your festival sacrifices, and you will be carried off with it. And you will know that I have sent you this admonition, so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. My covenant was with them, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth. And nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, and from his mouth men should seek instruction, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. You have turned from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people, because you have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters of the law. I want us to use this passage this morning to help us diagnose ourselves whether we are engaging in this kind of cold and empty worship. And from this passage, I want us to consider really just three things. The root of false worship, the fruit of false worship, and then the end of false worship. Root, fruit, and end of false worship. And I think as we, as we think about these things, it's an opportunity, again, for us to examine ourselves to see if we really believe in what we say we believe. Do we really believe that God's kingdom is coming? All right, so, so the first thing I want us to consider, the root of false worship, and that is a small view of God's love. A small view of God's love. Let me just read again, beginning in chapter 1, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. 
Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. The book of Malachi is organized into six disputations between God and his people. Uh, And here we see the first one. God declares his love for Israel. But his people doubt that that's true. And I guess we can understand why, given their circumstances. You know, ever since the days of Solomon, the nation of Israel has been in decline. Uh, Once a powerful nation, Israel has become less and less significant on the world's stage until finally the day it was conquered by the Babylonians and carried off into exile. God sent his prophets to, to warn the people about this. But he also spoke of God's faithfulness to preserve his people forever. And, and though God does bring his people back from exile to the promised land, those promises of Israel one day being a great nation, of, of one day being a blessing to all the world, those, those promises seem to be like a, a joke. No, instead, during Malachi's time, Judah has been reduced to, to a defenseless, financially depressed fringe province uh, within this vast Persian empire. The, the capital city of Jerusalem had been looted and burned and razed a, a century earlier, and, and now all that remains is, is this decimated population trying to eke out a hard existence on, on this small piece of land. More than that, the, the surrounding nations, like Edom, uh, continue to harass and threaten the people. So, so what does it mean that God loves them? Right? I, I wonder if some of you looking at your life, looking at the world around you, feel the same way. You know, does it feel like God has forgotten you? Do his promises to bless you and do you good seem distant? Well, with Israel, we look around and we ask, how have you loved us, God? And the answer is not what we would expect. God says, was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Well, God roots his answer not in anything in us or our circumstances, but in in him, in his free choice to love exclusively, to love one people and not another. so, So why does Israel exist to begin with? It's because God chose to love Jacob and not Esau. Two brothers born in the same family. One of them goes on to become the people of God. The other forms a nation that is at war with God. Why? Again, not because of anything particularly good or bad in any one of them. I mean, Jacob was was a cheat and a swindler from the beginning. Uh, If anything, Esau should have been the favored one because he was the firstborn. But no, God chose to love Jacob because he freely chose to do so. And and far from this love being abstract or theoretical, it, it has real life implications. How do we know that God loves Israel? Well, because he would judge Edom. Their enemies. Uh, again, this is not what we expect when we ask him, how have you loved us? Uh, God proves his love by promising to judge 
his enemies. Though Esau's descendants may boast about how they're going to rebuild, God will demolish them. It's not, it's not about their performance, about how good they are or how clever they are. No, they will be under the wrath of God. And they will one day be finally destroyed. God has chosen to love this nation of Israel and to reject this nation of Edom. What's God saying here? Well, well, for one thing, I think God is revealing that his love is grander and freer and stranger than we think. Uh, again, this is not what we would expect when we talk about God's love. Why is it that we always tend to sentimental, sentimentalize or, or oversimplify or, or flatten out the love of God? Now, we, we are much more likely to compare God's love to a doting grandfather. No offense to the grandfathers here. Um, you know, grandfathers are great. I love my grandfather. He, we, we watched TV together. He would carry me around. Uh, I would fall asleep on his lap. But I can never remember my grandfather disciplining me or, or giving me a spanking. Uh, uh, for some reason, we, we probably think that God's love is sort of like that. Um, that, that that's what it means for him to be loving. He gives us what we want. He doesn't discipline us. You know, another way we distort God's love is to think that in order for God to love us, we have to have our freedom. You know, if, if God is loving, then that means we get our way. God would never violate my human freedom. But what we find in the Bible is God's love consistently violates human freedoms. Uh, I mean, look at the look at the characters of the Bible. Look at Abraham and Jacob and Moses and David. What we see in the Bible is that, that those men were not in control of their destiny. God is in control. And his love is not the predictable, tame thing that we imagine it to be. No, no, God's love is ultimately about his choice, not ours. According to Malachi, we cannot understand the love of God apart from understanding God's freedom to choose those whom he loves, and those whom he rejects. So so have we so flattened and simplified God's love so that we've lost what Paul calls the, the height and the depth and the width and the breadth and the mystery of God's love? Have we so caricatured God into some sort of passive, dependent boyfriend who is limited entirely in his love by our our understanding, our permission. Now, how has God loved us? <clears throat> Maybe the first question that we need to answer is, well, who is God? Right? God is judge and king of the whole world. And yet, that God says that he has chosen to set his affection on a particular people. And the day will come when, when he will be revealed, when he will bring justice to this world, and we will see the glory of his love with our own eyes. How are we, how are we to make sense of this? What, what does this mean for us? Human history is the story of a world that is at war with God, a world that has rejected God as their creator and given itself over to evil and sin. This is what Edom represents they're not only a particular nation, but throughout the Old Testament, Edom represents all of God's enemies, the enemies of God's people. And therefore, the enemies of God. 
And God and His goodness will not stand by, but promises one day to triumph over evil and sin through judgment. But He will also triumph over sin another way, by redemption. In His goodness, He will not only destroy, but He will also deliver. That's that's who Israel was to be, a, a sinful people that God sets apart to be the glad recipients of His mercy and grace. And through Israel, God provides the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who came not to carry out judgment, but to save all those who would place their trust in Him. You know, human history is this grand story of God's glory, both in the defeat of evil and in the rescue of love. If you are not a Christian here this morning, then I want you to consider what this is saying about God's love. The, the, the love of God is one of the most popular tenets of Christianity. Even if you don't believe that there is a God, you probably think that if there was a God, he should be loving, right? Uh, and yet, when we think that way, we are often thinking, again, of that doting grandfather, the, the one who's not really in charge, the one who's not really, the, who doesn't really have any authority over us. No, no rather, the God of the Bible is the majestic, omnipotent, creator and king who has all rights, all freedoms, who owes nothing to us. And so, yeah, if God was simply was simply a, a grandfather, then, then of course, you'd be right to mock him and, and disbelieve him when things go wrong, when you see just how broken this world is. But if you were to actually humble yourself and acknowledge that God is, is bigger and deeper and, and more complex and more wise than we could ever know, then perhaps not only do we have reason to fear him and and tremble when we hear that we're under his wrath, but it should also humble us to hear him say to us, I have loved you. I have loved you becomes not so much a statement about how good we are, but really about how amazing and merciful he is. Whatever problems you have with God, I think it probably is at least in part due to you not having a big enough understanding of who he is. So so ponder that. Think about that. For my brothers and sisters, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then know that you belong to the true Israel. You are loved by God. And this is where true worship begins. If you're not sure whether God loves you or not, then your worship is never going to be the the heartfelt response of joy that it's supposed to be. Uh, Instead, you're always going to be doing works in hopes that God will accept you, that God will love you. And and when you think that you finally met that standard, you're going to grow proud. You're going to grow self-righteous. Now, only by believing that God has already accepted you, He already loves you, He already delights in you, can you now serve God, not as a slave master, but, but as a father? So, so this is the limitation of religion. You know, it, it commands us to change our behavior, but it can't change our hearts. Only by receiving the love of God, knowing that God has loved us in the gospel, can we be changed from the inside to worship God rightly. You know, all other motivations that you turn to, guilt, social pressure, trying to impress others, earning God's approval, none of those can change your heart. No, the the fundamental question you need to be asking yourself is, has the holy, 
majestic, all-powerful king of the universe loved me. And not in some sort of gener- generic, general way, but, but no, has he loved me particularly, exclusively? Has he set his affection on me through Jesus Christ? Has he forgiven me of my sins? Has he adopted me into his family? Did he give his life to redeem me? If you're trusting in Jesus, the answer is yes. Yes, he has. And that changes everything. So don't settle for a small, puny view of God's love. God is not the the insecure teenager asking you out on a date. No, he is king. He has all authority over this world. And yet he has chosen to set his love on you. If you're going to keep your love from growing cold, this is where you have to begin. At the root of so much false worship is a small view of God's love. And what happens if such people try to worship God? Well, that's what we see next. The fruit of false worship. That is worthless sacrifices. Worthless sacrifices. Let me read beginning in chapter 1, verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now implore God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations, from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying of the Lord's table, it is defiled, and of its food, it is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, crippled, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. If you have a small view of God, it's going to come out in the way you worship him. Uh, The priests of Malachi's day had compromised the, the sacrificial system that God had given them. God had graciously given his people uh, this sacrificial system as a way for them to atone for their sins so that they might be in fellowship with him. You know, sacrifices were never meant to be a burden. No, they were a loving gift to a sinful people to, in order for them to be in a relationship with a holy God. Well, but it seems that the people here and the priests have, have totally forgotten that. Why? Well, probably because their view of God had gotten small. God wasn't a holy God. Their sin really wasn't 
all that bad. And being in a relationship with God, well, that's that wasn't such a big deal. Maybe in the old days, you know, people really believed in this wrath and judgment stuff. But but we know better now, right? And so, do we really still need to offer our best animals for sacrifice? Uh, won't won't just some of our animals do? Well, it looks like that's exactly what these priests allow. You know, defective animals cost less. Blind, crippled, diseased animals can't work. They can't breed. But hey, if, if they can be used to fulfill this requirement for sacrifice, at least that's something. And, you know, as priests, they, they would have been probably motivated to accept these offerings. You know, maybe they were accepting bribes. You know, so if you bribe the priest, you could bring like a lesser offering. Uh, maybe he, they worked out a system where if you bring like five crippled animals, that counts for one like good animal. You know, so you get more meat if you're a priest. Uh, maybe this was just a scheme simply to get people to give at all. Since, like us, we're all really stingy when it comes to giving to God. Or maybe this was the way the priests really kind of kept up with the times. right? Neighboring religions were not nearly as exacting in their standards of giving. And so this meant that the Mosaic laws was really was really hard to keep. The Mosaic law demanded perfect animals. You know, whatever the particular reasons, you can see how it all worked out. Right? The farmer gets to call his herd of all the sick animals. He gets his worship credit. And, and the priest gets more offerings. And worship attendance increases. It's a win-win for, for the priest, for the people. And the only loser is God. This isn't even how they would treat a human governor. But this is how they treated their divine king. Well, God's response there in verses 10 through 11 is clear. These sacrifices are are utterly worthless. God would actually prefer the temple doors to be closed than for this charade to continue. This temple that these people have worked so hard to rebuild, God would actually prefer that that not even exist than for these defective, insulting sacrifices to continue to be offered. Now, what the people of Malachi's day forgot was that these sacrifices were never about these people fulfilling some kind of duty or or, or earning some kind of favor with God. It's not as if God needs these sacrifices. Uh, No, in fact, God makes it crystal clear in verse 11 that with or without us, the day is coming when worshipers from every nation will offer pure sacrifices to him from coast to coast, in every city, in every island, in every jungle, in every hamlet, people of every tribe, tongue, and ethnicity will worship God rightly. God will have the worshipers that he seeks. So we ought not to think that that our pitiful sacrifices are doing God any kind of favor. Now what Israel forgot was that worship is not merely about going through the motions as if that's what matters to God. No, rather, there is a theological reason behind the worship that he has instituted. The reason God requires an animal without defect is because that animal is to point to our need of a perfect substitute, one that would die in place of our imperfect selves. That animal pointed forward to the sacrifice that God would one day provide. 
Hebrews 9, when Jesus Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came in order to give his life as the perfect substitute for the sins of his people. How great is God's holiness? How great is God's wrath against sin? How great is his mercy towards sinners? How great is the expanse of his love? The answer is all found in Jesus Christ. God did not put forward a sickly, diseased, crippled sacrifice. No, no, he put forward his beloved son, his perfect son, the the infinitely worthy, perfectly obedient, eternally living son. Not to prove how great we are. If anything, his death reveals just the depravity of our sin. No, he, he put him forward to show how great God is. We, we have failed to honor God with our defective sacrifices. So God will bring glory to himself. And he has done so through Christ. So if you're a Christian here this morning, what, what does this have to do with you? Well, first, this is a reminder to us that there is no other acceptable way for us to come to God except through the perfect sacrifice that he has provided. If Old Testament saints look forward by faith to Christ by means of their sacrifices, then we look back to Christ by faith in the gospel, in the sacrifice that he has accomplished for us. It is only by trusting in Christ that we should consider ourselves accepted by God. So so whenever you resort to to moralism, to, to, to legalism, to keeping rules in order to please God, you're resorting to, to crippled and defective sacrifices before a holy and righteous God. So, so apply this by looking to Christ, the perfect lamb, the perfect substitute. But second, as Christians, we have not only been saved, but we have also been redeemed. What that means is that we've been bought. We are no longer our own. God owns us, and we are to give him our entire lives. Paul talks about us being given to him as living sacrifices. And so there is a place to ask, how are our sacrifices? Are are we giving God our lives, our best? Are are we living in obedience to God's commands for our lives? Are we seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness? The the context of this passage is particularly in the the context of the worship of God's people. So, So let's think about that. What's your attitude towards worshiping God, particularly when we gather as a church? Do you rejoice to come here when the doors are open? Are you glad to be here, like like Ron shared in his testimony? Whenever the doors are open, we're here. Uh, do you give cheerfully to the gospel, to the work of the gospel? Do you serve down in children's ministry out of a glad heart? Or would God rather the doors of this church be closed because of the dishonor? that we bring to him when we serve out of a burdened heart. Let's be clear. None none of those things save us, but 
But are we living like we believe that we have been loved and saved already? You know, here's a good question, and I get it from verse 13. Do we find God's commands to be burdensome? Right? Do we find ourselves resenting having to do what God calls us to do, having to, to forgive, to love that person that's really hard to love? Or are we gladly submitting ourselves to Him? You know, resentful religion is how we show others that we don't really believe what we practice. This is why God holds these priests responsible. They were leading in a way that basically convinced the people that they didn't have to take God seriously. That, that God was really not to be feared. So for those of us here who find ourselves in positions of, of leadership and of teaching, listen carefully uh, you know, to, to elders, to, to teachers, to Sunday school leaders and small group leaders and, and, and husbands and parents. You, you, we are regularly up front talking to people about Jesus, but do people sense from our lives that we really believe what we teach, that, that, there, that there is a, a fear of God in our lives, even greater than, than our circumstances and what people think? In other words, if you want to make sure that you have an ineffective Christian witness, then just play the hypocrite, right? Do things not because you fear God, but for all kinds of other reasons, for, for praise of men, for, for self-righteousness, for pride. Uh, it might work in the short run, but I guarantee you that the fruit in the end will be wretched. And people will see through it. Kids will th- see through it. Your neighbors will see through it. No, the only way to lead people to the truth is by a heart that gladly fears and honors God in response to the great love that he has shown. If you're not a Christian here this morning, realize that we're not asking you to join us in this club of resentful religion. Uh, if coming to church every Sunday, if, if leaving a particular vice, if serving others seems like a burden, well, welcome to the club. Uh, that, that's what it means for us to be sinners. And, and forcing ourselves to do good things is not how we please God. Now realize that God himself hates resentful, burdensome religion. That kind of worship does not honor him one bit. Rather, where you have to begin is not with yourself, but with God. The king of the universe does not need anything from you. No, rather, we have rejected his rightful rule over our lives, and he has every claim over our lives still. But instead of damning us, he has responded in love, giving us his son. Jesus Christ willingly gave up his life as a sacrifice for sinners dying in our place. Three days later, he rose from the dead to prove that that sacrifice was accepted by God. And now he holds out forgiveness and mercy and love to any who will turn away from their sins and place their trust in him. So friend, forget any ideas about Christianity being about keeping a bunch of rules or, or acting morally superior to others. No, it's the opposite. Christianity is for people who realize they deserve nothing from God. And yet, in sheer amazement, they find God to be amazingly loving, and gracious, and forgiving. You begin by understanding that God has loved you in Jesus Christ. Does that sound appealing? You can come to Christ today. Talk to me at the door. Talk to somebody who who brought you, talk to a Christian friend. We would love to help you think through this more. You know, Malachi has painted a grim picture of 
the state of God's people here. If even the priesthood is so corrupt, what hope is there for the people? Well, God will not stand by and allow this to continue. And so we see the end of false worship, the end of false worship. And that is God's covenant kept. God's covenant will be kept. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. And now this admonition is for you, O priests. If you do not listen, and if you do not set your heart to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them, because you have not set your heart to honor me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will spread on your faces the offal from your festival sacrifices, and you will be carried off with it. And you will know that I have sent you this admonition so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace. And I gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and turned many from sin. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, and from his mouth men should seek instruction because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. But you have turned from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people, because you have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters of the law. What's the end? What's the result of false worship? Well, God is clear. He will not accept it, but will reject it. Here in these verses, we see what's at stake. The, the Levitical priesthood exists because they are a kind of covenant that God has made with his people. When God established the Mosaic law, the priests were put in place in order that they might be mediators between God and the people. And so the priests were to intercede to God on behalf of the people, and they were to mediate blessing to the people on behalf of God. In this way, they were to be a source of blessing and life and peace to the covenant community. But they failed. Instead, what we see here is corruption and greed and false worship. Uh, but God will not abandon that covenant. These false priests who corrupt the worship of God, they themselves are going to be cursed. Uh, that's what we see here in these verses. The, the people look to the priests to pronounce blessings on them, but God would curse those blessings. And, and instead of carrying on in this corrupt office forever, no, God would see that they are brought to shame, that they are exposed for all their uncleanliness. And, and the language here of being carried off, it, it even echoes of the exile. Yes, God had just brought them back from exile, but this is no excuse for their continued sin. God will not tolerate it, and in the end, he will require that his people be holy, just as he is holy. You know, what this tells us is that God will not allow his name to be dishonored by heartless worship, by false worship. In the end, those who refuse to honor God, he will not honor them. They will be shown not to belong to him. They will be exposed for the fakes that they are. As you hear these warnings, don't just think that God is being mean. No, they are warnings, which means they are mercy. They're, they're meant for us to hear them and to, and to repent and to turn away from our sin and to come back to him. Uh, if you find yourself among those who profess to follow God but 
are doing so out of, out of a cold, unbelieving heart, you don't hear this as condemnation. No, hear this as hope. Because God is calling you back to himself. God is calling you to see him as he really is, to understand his love in a new way, and to find forgiveness and mercy. Respond, first and foremost, by going to the gospel, by knowing that he has provided a savior even for your sins. When we get to the days of Jesus, we see that the, the priesthood is, is just utterly corrupt. Uh, Jesus is dealing with priests who have not set their hearts to honor God, priests who honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. And sure enough, not long after they put Jesus to death, God's judgment here comes true. The, the entire priestly system is decimated by the Romans. And to this day, it has not been restored. God does not give idle warnings. But that's not the end of the story either. God is faithful to his covenant. God will not fail, but he will bring an end to all false worship. In nailing Christ to the cross, these priests fulfilled unwittingly the role that they were given. Jesus, the perfect lamb, fulfilled all that the sacrificial system pointed towards. And now by his work, he has ushered in the blessings of God's covenant with Levi. Through Christ, we have received eternal life, eternal peace with God. And Christ has poured out his spirit so that now, in the midst of a fallen world, former rebels are being transformed into the true servants of God. How does Peter put it? First Peter 2, as you come to Jesus Christ, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual temple to be a holy priesthood, offering sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Friends, this is the greatness of our God. His covenant has not failed. Through the sacrifice of Christ, through the giving of His Spirit to His people, we now have been made priests to this fallen world. United to Christ, we now stand between a fallen world and a holy God. And we have been given a task not to make atonement for their sins, but to point them to the one great atonement that has been made in Jesus Christ. We are messengers of the Lord Almighty, and we carry his message to a fallen world, bringing life and peace to any who will place their trust in his Son. And this will be the end of the story. Chapter 1, verse 5 you will see it with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. Chapter 1, verse 11, My name will be great among the nations, from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name, because my name will be great among the nations. Verse 14, For I am a great king, and my name is to be feared among the nations. This fallen world, with all of its false worship, all of its small views of God, it will not last. It will come to an end. I don't know the kind of week that you had, but personally, after the headlines of this week, I long for that day. I, I long for the day when God will transform this world and set all things right. And he will, because he is the great king. He will be honored among the nations. God's glory is the gravity of history. And gravity always wins. One day our sin will finally be defeated. 
Christ will be glorified, and we who have trusted in Christ will reign with him forever. We will know that he has loved us. Do you believe that? Then, then let's not live with cold hearts like that's not true. No, no, let, let's, let's begin living as if God indeed is the great king even now. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Oh God, we praise you as our great king. You are to be feared among the nations. You are worthy of our trust, our praise, our delight, our love. Oh God, cause your name to be lifted up. Cause your kingdom to come. And Lord, do that even in our lives. As we go out this week, Lord, change us. Let our hearts be melted by your love. And Lord, let people see something of your greatness in us. Lord, that they would not see a resentful religion, but know that they would see glad worship. Oh Lord, do this. Remind us of this. For your glory, we pray in Christ's name.